Well, there's been a lot going on already uh, in this uh, service. It's all been kicking off in a variety of different ways. Uh, but I'm going to just uh, share a few thoughts in relation to this passage. Um, I don't know whether you ever, ever stop and ask big questions of life. Do you? I think as I get older, I ask those questions. And we should be asking those questions. Um, the huge ones. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there so much evil? Why is there brokenness? Where is God? Where's the world heading? Why do we worship him? What's it all about? That's why we're doing Genesis 1-4. to Because the reality is in these four chapters, there is the very, if you like, people would describe it as the meta-narrative of the whole Bible. It sets up the whole Bible, but actually explains and begins the story. And within it, there is actually both the recognition of where we're at, but also, as we're going to find in a few moments, the restoration begins for where it's been. Now, um, hopefully this will work. Things we do have consequences. The beautiful Durdle Door in Dorset uh, reminds me of a story about 13 years ago involving my son James. Now, uh, my mum was down for the weekend. We decided, right, we're going to go to Durdle Door. My son decided he was going to do revision uh, prior to his A-levels, okay, the Easter just before. It was a beautiful day, and uh, so we left him at home, um, and uh, uh, we went down to the beach. On our way back from a lovely day at uh, the beautiful Durdle Door, if you've ever been there, it's fantastic, we get a phone call from James. Uh, I'm driving the car as we come back. Uh, my wife is sitting next to me. And uh, what he said was, Mum, don't freak out. But the fire brigade are here. Now, uh, the encouraging thing about that was, number one, he was alive. Uh, and, 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 and yet, within that, there are a whole load of caveats. And definitely, he was at home. Basically, what had happened was, James had decided revision wasn't for him. So he decided to invite all his mates around, okay, to our place. He decided that, uh, that one of them would bring a, a disposable barbecue and uh, a few beers, and they would do revision together in the garden, all right? Played a bit of football, uh, got a bit bored with that, uh, cooked a few sausages on the disposable barbecue, and thought, right, we'll kick a ball around. We need to get rid of the disposable barbecue. Let's put it in the treehouse, okay? So we had a little platform in the treehouse, lovely fir tree, all this stuff. So he put it in that, and then basically kicked around whatever, cooked a few things, and his mates went, knowing that uh, mum and dad were going to be coming back soon, and, um, uh, and he decided he'd uh, go and have a kip. So he went upstairs. Little did he know that in the meantime, the uh, hot disposable barbecue had fallen down behind the fence. Suddenly, he was woken up with a, a neighbour who had uh, seen from about half a mile away flames 60 feet up in the sky as the barbecue had fallen down behind it. It had caught hold of the fence. It took out the tree. It was right up to the top and um, they called the fire brigade, burst into the house. My, my, my son woke up um, and the next scene was us arriving back with two firefighters 
I remember, and my son looking very sheepish next door. From one small act, the consequences were the burning up of an entire tree, the taking out of an entire part of our garden and the next door neighbor's garden, and the trampoline had burnt as well. Okay? Praise the Lord, it didn't get the house. From small things, or seemingly small things, and small decisions, consequences happen. This is a very brief summary of Genesis 3. From this passage, which was beautifully brought to light last week, remember by Tom, if you heard Tom's talk, well worth listening to it, where he describes sin, if you remember, can you remember how he describes sin? Shove off God, writing S, I, I'm in charge, and N, no to your rules, okay? Shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. An understanding of sin, our decision, we're going to go our own way and not do what God wanted. And from that, we get the fallout. And the fallout is what we are still living with. The brokenness of the world is because of what happens in Genesis 3. How does it happen? In a variety of different ways, which are going to zip through, aware of time. Firstly, death of communion with God. The beautiful thing about Genesis 2 is the wonderful sense that they walk together with God. The picture of how it should be with God. Beautiful relationship, recognizing his holiness, but also his closeness and his friendship. Sweet communion has gone, reaching the point where they cover themselves up, when they break this, and they're no longer able to be fully open with God. Brokenness has happened with their communion of God, which leads ultimately to fear, verses 8 and 10, humiliation. God is not now a friend, the Lord God. He is God, just distant, like a foe. Not really someone that you could know that well. The reality is, we all fall into this. We distance ourselves from God in a number of different ways. We domesticate God. We put God in a box. We don't actually let God in. Some days, we're there. The rest of the time, he's a distant memory. It may be that actually... We glance this way and that as we secretly access something on the computer or the phone that God would not want to see if he was there. We claim we're spending time with him while actually we're distracted by other things. Isn't it interesting? It's not a mistake. It's so hard, isn't it, just to spend time in God's presence. One of the reasons we're doing what we're doing this week is not because we love to listen to worship and we want to spend every evening doing that. Because we really feel God is saying that we need to get into his presence. And we're enabling ourselves to say, let's get into the presence of God. And God seems to be doing something, particularly much young people at the moment, where it's like he's giving a fresh desire to break out of the brokenness and everything they see around the world and say, Lord God, I want fresh communion with you. That is what he's saying. That's what we're inviting you to consider uh, this week. And part of things. And we see this fear of God moves on to excuses. We talked about that last week. The ability to blame others and to blame one another. We went on a trip this week up to a conference in Harrogate. At least on two occasions I blamed my wife. 
for the way we were driving, the mistakes we make. Have you ever been in a car with another one? And, you know, isn't it interesting how easily we blame one another? It's just built in within the fallenness of each one of us. Brokenness happens and it leads to those things. It has dire consequences. So the first thing is death of communion with God. Secondly, death of relationship with others. And this is where we come to this passage really. We see a death between man and God, if you like, a dying there, a functioning not as friends and helpmates, but actually sinners warped their relationship. And we know that within marriage there's meant to be that protection that's offered by the husband. There's that sense here of the wife within this, what we read here in verse 16, that there's a shift in their relationship. Instead of to love and to cherish, like we say in the marriage service, it becomes to desire and to dominate. And God's vision for marriage is lost. And it's only later on we begin to see how that synergy that's supposed to happen, when we read it in Ephesians 5, is where we see that, that, that as they reverence um, one another before God, there's that sense that relationships should be restored in that way. But it has been broken, it's been devastated, and we live with the consequences. Many of us here live with the consequences of the death and the breakup of relationships that have happened. That is the reality of Genesis 3. Breakdown of relationship with God, breakdown of relationship with others, and even the death of creation itself. We go on here in um, verses 17 to 19. Cursed is ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And then it goes on to say, by the sweat of your brow, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Effectively, on the work front, for example, instead of thank God it's Monday, it's oh no, it's Monday. That shift, if you like, in understanding work, which should be something beautiful, fulfilling, becomes a place of drudgery and frustration. Creation has broken that sense and it becomes burdensome. But also within our own physical nature, death comes, the dying of ourselves. Last night I got back very late from uh, one of my best friend's 70th birthday party. And uh, there I was 10 years younger than him, feeling very young. And you know you're getting old, don't you, when you think 70 is quite young. You know, I mean, and, and, and the fact is, is, you know, the reality was it was a party that I've not been too much because everybody talks about their health. You're sitting there, you just go to a party and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I've just had a new hip or I've got a new knee or, you know, I've got these... Tr- what is it? And it is because we are decaying. We're getting older. And the fact is, is that, again, is the product, I'm afraid, of the fall. One day we will have new bodies. Amen. Don't you think that's the best thing about heaven? We'll have new bodies. Probably aged about 33. You remember what you were like. Some people say it was 33 because the same age Jesus was when he died. Anyhow, the, I don't know whether that's true. It's not in the Bible. I just say it, okay? But the point is, is that we will be made new. But that, the effect of sin, is the consequences of it, is the physical decaying of our body and ultimately death itself. The ultimate taboo in our society, isn't it? It's flipped around from the Victorian days when actually death was just part of life. When this church was built, that would have been built within the life of people and sex would be the thing you wouldn't talk about. It's flipped around where we're highly sexualized. 
But actually, we don't talk about death. It's for somewhere else. We, we, we agree and we work, work along with Woody Allen's great quote, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And we, we, we fit into that mode. We don't want to talk about it. We're not aware, but death has come on it. And what do we do? We seek to fill our lives with the stuff of life as we do this. As Pascal once said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only the creator God. We're desperately seeking for it. And we see in the garden where they've been thrown, effectively we're just about to be cast out of the garden. And God speaks over them the consequences of sin. And we see it in our lives. We see that our relationship with God is such hard work. It's not an easy, natural thing. Secondly, that our relationships with others are not easy. That it's hard. And thirdly, that death is a constant reality. Well, now you should be seriously depressed. And in one sense, Genesis 3 is there for a reason. To remind us of the depths of how, how, how serious sin is. Sin is not something, as Tom highlighted last week, that if you like is, is a little bit of fun. As he said, you know, sin promises a lot but delivers little. And the fact is, is that so often we need to recognize that. And that is why God at the moment seems to be, as I say, calling us increasingly to a place of repentance. A place of recognizing we cannot do anything without this holy God. But built even within Genesis 3, this supposedly deeply depressing chapter, there is the signs of hope hidden within it, right in the heart of it. It's a wonderful thing. The mercy of God begins to rebuild itself. Verse 9. Again, Tom brought this out last week. The true God, the God who made us, the God who walked with them in the Garden of Eden is a seeking God. Because it says, doesn't it, in verse eight, verse 9, it says, he comes to them, he says, where are you? He's not distant. Where are you? And that's what God is always doing to us every day. He's saying, where are you? When you wake up in the morning, he's saying, where are you? Let's have some time together. Where are you in the midst of everything? He's a seeking God who loves us so much. And those wonderful pictures Jesus uses, isn't he? In the, you know, the, of the prodigal son being welcomed home. Of the, the shepherd going in, in search of the one. Those wonderful sense that God is like that. He speaks directly to us of a seeking God. But secondly, and this is where the hope starts in this particular section. He is the saving God as well. Verse 15, it says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That's referring to the serpent, to Satan. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now that reference there between your offspring and hers... He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's the beginning of God's answer. So from Genesis 3, the beginning of redemption happens then. I'll explain what that means. What it's saying here is that a descendant of Adam himself, Mary, a woman. So as Eve took um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the fruit, another woman, Mary, would produce the offspring of the second Adam. Do you see what I'm saying? So the second Adam, Jesus, was the beginning of the salvation of the world. 
Isn't that an incredible thing? Stated there is saying, you are finished, Satan. You think you've done it. And yet, there is going to be one who comes one day, who is the offspring of Mary, who will bring life and will crush you, will crush, as it says, crush your head. And you will try to finish him off. When strike his heel, you will try to kill this person who comes. You will try to kill this saviour, Jesus, of course. But in the decisive battle, which takes place on another tree, Calvary, the tree of life, will bring life in all its fullness. Can't you get reasonably excited about that? In a Pentecostal church, you say, Amen, brother. The fact is, that, It's the core there of how much God loves us. And God, even though, in a sense, he knew he would do our thing, he then gives the kernel of salvation that is to come. What is more, it says, we are not, as we are not destined for hell, we can be forgiven. Then, verse 21, it even says, they put on garments, it says here, of skin for Adam and his wife and and whatever, that cover them up. But one day he will give us garments of righteousness because he will clean us from all that has broken our relationship with him. And one day we will be able to stand before God in his presence without the shame or the fear or humiliation. It's the greatest thing that could happen. And so from Genesis 3 all the way through, we see that to one day in Revelation The garden returns. The garden city of God. Restoration right in the core of what could seem dark and dismal. And even work. One day when we are in paradise, we will work. But we'll work in a fulfilled way, in a wonderful way. But even as we face work here, we can know these things. You know what? This should give us hope. And you know what? It's not steak on a plate while you wait. It's available to us now. It's available to us now. It's part of what we do. So God is in the business, the beautiful business of restoring communion to himself, relationship with others, and the hope also of even in our workplace, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. We can know that one day, but we can know that now. So how do we respond to this? We're going to share in communion in a moment, which is a wonderful picture of of what Jesus has done has restored us back together with him. But there's a few things I want to draw out from this. And this is the invitation, really, I'm praying over this week. Because I want to consecrate this week. I really feel this week is significant in the life of Christ Church. I think it's a, a place where we're saying, Lord God, we want to come before you. And number one, we want to acknowledge you as sovereign and Lord and holy. And he's inviting us to worship and adore him in our personal times in when we gather afresh. Secondly, we are deeply broken and we need to recognize that. And I think he's calling us to confession. But we have a savior. He's calling us to gratitude. And we can have life. So he calls us to repent, to turn back to him as we were saying earlier. Julian was saying earlier, 
And then to allow him to come in and fill us with his spirit.